Well, we have made it. We have made it to the end of the series, Vinyl. And uh, I'm really excited about where we are in this series because of the final, final installment. You know, I was thinking about vinyl over the course of musicians' history. And really, in our day and age, vinyl records kind of symbolize a staying power of sorts. If, if somebody was making music, you know, before eight tracks and cassettes and CDs and MP3s, but they have somehow sustained a career and a body of work and, and their, their works are still available on vinyl and you go to like Waterloo Records and you kind of go through the bin looking, that shows you that they have a sustained record of excellence and artistic quality uh, across the span of their career as opposed to some of the one-hit wonders that we all know so well. You know, of course, I'm talking about bands like Right Said Fred. You know, you know Right, right Said Fred. Who, how many of you remember Right Said Fred? They, of course, gave us the classic, I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt. I'm talking about the Baja Men. How many of you know the Baja Men? Can I just see a show of hands? Evidence of a misspent youth. Thank you, thank you, yes. Okay, the Baja Men, of course, taught us who let the dogs out? That, that was the Baja men. Los Del Rio. Los Del Rio. A lot of people may not know the name, but you know the song that they gave us. Hey, Macarena. That is the band. These are these, these one-hit wonders. Am I the only one who loves the one-hit wonders? Come on. I mean, if you can't get down for some Macarena, that's a spiritual problem. I'm just. How many of you say Macarena or Macarena? Let me see. Macarena, raise your hand. I would, take it, I would take it as a comedy if you call it Macarena, but Macarena, Macarena. Anyway, these one-hit wonders, man, they are here today and gone tomorrow. You will probably never find the Baja men at Waterloo Records or in some store somewhere that sells actual vinyl. But there are those artists, those artists whose careers span decades, and their, their artistry is so stellar so stand out that at some point, maybe while they're still living or even after they're gone, record companies come together and they compile all of their work and they put it into a, a box set. Everything that they ever recorded, a box set or a discography. And they, they put these things out and, and if you listen to the box set, you notice certain themes and styles that kind of emerge as a signature across a whole career, no matter how the songs may have changed or even how they may have dabbled in different genres of music, there's something about their career, their, their body of work. Think about Elvis Presley. Elvis, of course, he's the king of rock and roll. Elvis gave birth to the Beatles. Now, if the Beatles, if you listen to their box set, there's this incredible merging of perfect, perfect lyricism and melody coming together. The Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, if you listen to their box set, they're just the greatest garage band the world has ever known. I think about U2. U2 across decades has merged rock and spirituality. Closer to home, how about Willie Nelson? I mean, Willie, Willie has played with everybody under the sun. He's done everything from country to jazz to gospel to standards. And his, his body of work, his box sets just reveals just his willingness. I mean, I, I don't know what else to call it. It's just, it's an amazing signature when you hear that voice and that guitar played as only Willie 
can play it. This idea of a box set, I think, is really the perfect way for us to end this series called Vinyl because the call of God on our lives is to compile a body of work, a box set, if you will, that across decades reveals a life lived in hi-fi, high-fidelity faithfulness to the amazing grace of God. And throughout this series, we've used the book of Ephesians. Ephesians has kind of been our guide to hi-fi living. And as we come to the end of the book of Ephesians this week, you find the Apostle Paul, again, keeping in mind that he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to this fledgling congregation that he helped to found there in Ephesus and explaining to them exactly what the gospel, the good news of Jesus is, and just as importantly, how to live it out. So it's one thing to to live in the promise of the gospel, but it's entirely another to live out the power of the gospel. And that's what Ephesians has been all about. I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 6. If you've got your Bible with you or you've got it on your phone there. And as you're looking up Ephesians chapter 6, I want to remind you of the context, really, of this entire letter. Most New Testament scholars agree that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians around 61 or 62 AD while he was languishing in a Roman prison. This was Paul's final swan song because we know historically, though it's not recorded biblically, historically we know that Paul was executed in Rome at the hands of the Roman emperor Nero, probably by decapitation. And As Paul is approaching his death, he knows he's approaching the end of his earthly ministry. He's kind of like just there's a sense of urgency, particularly as he writes to people that he loves, as he writes to encourage them, to challenge them, to, to step up and carry on this work that Jesus began, that he got to be a part of, and now they will be in their hands. And I want to kind of skip towards the end of chapter 6 to to begin this morning, then we'll go back. But I I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20. In Ephesians 6, 20, keeping in mind that Paul is in prison, he's now an old man, and this is what he writes. He says, I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So I pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Man, Paul's... Probably, and now when I say Paul's old, that's not in 21st century terms. So when I tell you that Paul's old and then I tell you he was about 60 years old at this point, that's not a reflection on you or me. That's in this day and age, living to 60 was a major accomplishment. It just didn't happen that often. It was a hard, hard time to be alive. But Paul is approaching the end of his life. He says, listen, I'm in chains. I I am handcuffed here in Rome but just pray for me that I will continue speaking this message faithfully and with boldness as I should. That, ladies and gentlemen, that's how I want to go out. I mean, if you think about how you want your life to to be remembered, I want to go out, I mean, just absolutely kicking and screaming. Just, Just shut it down and send me home. But at some point, we've got to remember that as long as we have breath in our bodies, God has something for us to do for him wherever you are and whoever you are. All of us have this opportunity in front of us. And so that's the context behind this this kind of final charge to the church 
at Ephesus. Look in verse 10. Now we're going to go back now. I just wanted to kind of set that context. Verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 6. You'll notice Paul's intensity throughout the verses that we're going to cover today. Look, I want to just, just give you a little, a little preliminary taste. He uses words like be strong, stand firm, fight against, resist the enemy, stand firm, stand your ground, be prepared, hold up the shield, take the sword, stay alert, and be persistent. It's kind of like, whoa, Paul, enough of the caffeine. But there's this sense of urgency because Paul knows at this point in his life that time on earth is finite. He understands that his time is limited. And I think that's a really helpful perspective for all of us. Because I don't know if you saw the results of a study that came out recently of the people who were born in the United States of America or who live here currently. 100% of us will die. 100%. The mortality rate across the globe, with one glaring exception, is 100%. And none of us gets to choose when that moment will be. For all of us, time is precious. And so it's with this in mind that Paul is kind of issuing his final charge to the church at Ephesus. And I would suggest you not only to the Ephesians, but to the Austinians as well. Check this out. He says in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 10, he says a final word, be strong, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Tell your neighbor right now, get your strong on, get your strong on, be strong in the Lord. Hey, love, could I ask you to throw me a water, please? Have a little communion crumb in my throat there. Thank you. (laughs) Just keeping it real. I mean. Thank you. Now, to be strong in the Lord, you know what? That that verb in the original Greek is in the imperative tense. That means it's a command. So when he says, be strong, he's telling us something really, really critical. That to be strong is a choice that we make in response to God's grace. To be strong is a choice. You know, it'd be different if Paul said to me, for example... Pastor Mac, dunk the basketball in the power of the Lord. I'd be like, bruh, I love you. I don't have that choice. That's not an option for me. But when he says be strong in the imperative sense, that means that we have a choice to make, that we can choose strength over weakness in the power of the Lord. Not in our own power. Not by my might is the battle won. But I can choose to be strong. Now, we don't have the time to to hear from everyone in the room or the inclination necessarily to hear from anyone for just this moment. But let me ask you a question. Just if you are right now fighting a fight, facing a battle, would you just raise your hand? If you've got a challenge in your life right now, just, just raise your hand. Now, keep your hands up. It's okay. Look around the room, y'all. Look, see, I'm not kidding. Look around the room. Look, is this amazing? And yet God, in his amazing grace, gives us the opportunity and the option to be strong. 
That, that's part of the miracle and the mystery of the church. That in Christ Jesus, in our weakness, we are strong together. This week when you're fighting that battle, or maybe this afternoon, maybe at lunch when you're sitting down with your battle, whatever the case might be, I want you to remember the hands that you saw raised in this room. And if your hand wasn't raised and you're not and everything's cool, awesome. Buckle up. Because a battle will come. You have a choice to make. Be strong in the power of the Lord. Now, that is all just, let's, let's get into, this is, this is powerful, powerful Christian doctrine and theology that plays out every single day in our lives. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, now, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly place. Paul is telling us here, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, that this life is a spiritual battlefield. There is a battle going on that most of us never even are aware that we're engaged in, and yet we're engaged in it every single day. Now, let me be very, very clear. The spiritual battle is real, and it can be escalated, and it can become really, really pronounced and pitched at times. But it's always going on, and it doesn't mean that we should be running around looking for the boogeyman behind every corner and rock. It doesn't mean if we pull into the mall and we can't find a parking spot that the demon of parking lotness has attacked us. We, we can't get too too wrapped up in the spiritual realm that we become of no earthly good. So it's important that we keep these things in perspective, but we've got to understand that this battle is real. This battle goes on all the time, everywhere we are. I remember one time I was coaching Joe's, Joe's baseball team when he was a young guy. And we got to the field for a game at the appointed time, and, and you know, we were there kind of throwing and warming up and stretching out and everything, and we, we looked over, and there was no opponent in their dugout. Nobody had showed up yet, and we were like, well, I'm sure they'll be here any minute now. And as game time approached, nobody showed up. And about five minutes before the first pitch was scheduled, our head coach got a call from the opponent's head coach, and he goes, coach, man, I'm so sorry. I told our guys to go to the wrong field today. We're 30 minutes away. There's no way we're going to get over there for the game. Do y'all mind waiting? And of course, Little League fields being what they are at a premium, there were games stacked up all day long. We couldn't postpone our game for an hour until they could get over there and get stretched out. And so we won. <laughs> Just forfeit. We, we got a big W in the, in the column, and we played pepper for about an hour, let the boys run around the bases, and we hit balls to them, and they played against each other. woo and It was great. But that other team lost because they weren't where they were supposed to be competing like they were supposed to be competing. That is a perfect picture 
of the Christ follower who doesn't realize the spiritual battle that is going on. If you don't realize it, you will forfeit. We forfeit the important, that which really matters and the significant for the immediate, the physical, and the material world that we can see. Now, in Jesus' economy, in gospel living hi-fi life, the spiritual impacts the physical, and the physical is dependent upon the spiritual, so it all matters. But it's imperative that we understand there is a spiritual battle going on. And this spiritual battle can take a lot of different forms. It can take the form of a direct assault on your faith. Somebody who confronts you and says, you're a Christian? That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's just a bunch of fairy tales crutch that people use who can't think for themselves. That's an attack. Now, that person clearly hasn't done any homework. They're, they're banking on stuff that they've heard and are just parroting it back into the universe, but they're talking out of the side of their head. But it happens. An attack may be a distraction. It, it may be something that comes along that, that is a good thing, but distracts us from God's best. Sometimes the spiritual battle is just good old-fashioned sin, money, sex, power, and, and the focus of our lives around one or all of those things. Sometimes, sometimes the battle is a relational conflict. Some, sometimes there's a, there's a battle that is waging in our homes, maybe between a husband and a wife, or between a parent and a child, or between siblings, and that good old-fashioned sibling rivalry has escalated to the point where it's no longer just about, you know, he looked at me, or he touched me in the back seat or something. It's, it, it can become very, very pronounced. But it's all spiritual warfare, and it's there. But the good news is the battle and the war, the war has already been won no matter what battles we fight because Jesus rose from the dead. And so Paul says this battle is going on. Now put on all the armor of God. Look at what he says. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Verse 14, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. The belt of truth. We're going to take each of these pieces of armor one by one very quickly. But the belt of truth, that's actually a more genteel modern translation. In the original language, Paul is saying, gird your loins with truth. That means because when, when warriors would go to war in Paul's day, they had these, these flowing garments that, you know, sometimes the Romans had them down to here. They were miniskirt people. Other people had them down to here. You had to bind that stuff up around your waist and underneath in order to be ready to fight. You, you, had, to, you had to gird your loins that, that's the biblical term. It's what God said to Job when he told him to get ready, because I'm fixing to question you. You spent all this time questioning me. Now it's your turn. Gird yourself. Bind yourself up with the truth. I cannot overemphasize to you how significant truth is. You and I live in a world that declares the truth of relativism. That, that relativism, 
your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and, and that's okay just as long as your truth doesn't say that I'm wrong. And that is a philos- forget spiritual Christian considerations for just a moment. Philosophically, relativism is bankrupt. It doesn't work. To say that there is no absolute truth is a statement of absolute truth. So the next time somebody trots that out at you over an espresso or at a dinner party, just go, whoa, time out, cuz. You just made a statement of absolute truth. So if there's no absolute truth, your statement is not absolutely true. And you just twisted my words around. No, I just hung you on them. Because it's philosophically bankrupt. Truth is reality. And there is truth in this world, materially as well as spiritually. Guess who gets to decide what's true? God. He authored the world. He created everything. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is reality. We have to be able to deal with reality. I'll give you an example. People love relativism until they have to pay bills or they have children. At those two points, everybody becomes an absolutist. Think about it. You don't get to call American Express at the end of your month and go, listen, I know the bill was $175, but my truth is that I just want to pay you $80. That's my truth. American Express is like, awesome. The reality is you charged $175 worth of crud on your card. Send me my money. That's the truth. That's the reality. Parents, once we have children, man, God bless them. But at three years old, when they start pushing the envelope, that's the time to go, love, I am your truth, and I'm telling you the truth. If you do that again, you will regret that. That's truth. So the the belt of truth is central to the Christian faith. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He rose from the dead. He rose from from the dead. He is the son of the living God, the alpha and the omega, always and forever, king of kings and lord of lords. He ain't just a good teacher. That's the truth. So if somebody ever says to you, well, I kind of think it'd be like all religions are the same. Cute sentiment. It is. It's precious. But it's not true. If they were all the same, they'd all be called the same thing. Islam does not accept Jesus as the Savior of the world. So they're not the same. They do not allow Jesus to be the final judge of the world. That's not the same. Jesus is the only one who chose to die for you. He is the only one who is the Son of the living God. Don't buy the lie. Gird yourself with the truth. 
and the breastplate of righteousness, the body armor of God's righteousness, God's righteousness imputed to us through Christ. That means that God gave us his righteousness to cover our sin. So the rightness and the moral perfection of God is transferred to us through Christ when we come into a relationship with God, and that becomes our body armor. That that becomes the stuff that, that bullets bounce off of, baby, because it's his righteousness and not mine. For shoes, verse 15, put on the peace that comes from the good news, the gospel, so that you will be fully prepared. There's a verse in the Bible that is one of my favorites because it's so odd. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, I don't know everyone in the room. A lot of you I don't know. But I'll promise you, your feet are ugly. You, you got, I mean, there's just nothing attractive about toes. Would somebody help me preach? I don't care how many petties you get. I, I don't care the filing of the sanding. That's awesome. But when you bring good news to people, even your feet are beautiful. He says, put on, put on the shoes. Be prepared to tell the good news. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith. To stop the fiery arrows of the devil. The shield of faith is that which we remember the truth of the resurrection. And that's what we cling to. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that everything else that he said is true. And so we put our trust and our faith in that. And so we hold up that shield to stop the fiery, stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Verse 17, put on salvation as your helmet. Your helmet guards and protects your mind and your heart, your mind and your thoughts. Man, our, our thought lives are so powerful, so strong. Bring every thought captive to Christ. We remember that he, he died on the cross and, and that in his resurrection, he gave us the opportunity for salvation. And so we, that's our helmet. That, that's, what, that's what we guard our minds and our thoughts. Take the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. The sword is the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting through both joint and marrow. Jesus, in his temptation, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan attacks him. A spiritual battle ensues. And at every single juncture, Jesus fought off the attack with the sword of the Spirit. He used Scripture to fight that battle because he knew the word. He, he is the word, but he knew the word as well and used that to fight the battle. He clung to that truth in the moment, 40 days and 40 nights. In the first temptation, Satan says, take these stones and turn them to bread. You look hungry. And he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, when you know scripture like that, when you've done the work to spiritually ingest it, then you're able to use it in that moment of trans of, of temptation. That's the sword. See, I, I know the word, I just don't know the sermon, so I'm teasing. Have you ever done that? Just drawn a blank? That's horrible. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. 
Verse 19, and pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. Again, with this idea of equality, this idea that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, but in Jesus' eyes, at the cross, we are all united in this hi-fi living. Now, this has been kind of a, a militaristic conclusion to the letter. It's been kind of like, whoa, a lot of fighting going on, swords and shields and such. And yet, look at the result of the swords and seals and such. Verse 23, peace be with you. Dear brothers and sisters, and may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love with faithfulness. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. When it's all said and done, when we've gone from the beginnings and explaining what the gospel really is and we've gotten into the meat of the book and we've talked about how to live that out as, as husband and wife or father and mother or worker and employee. All of those things. When it's all said and done, it's about faithfulness to the love of Jesus. It's about knowing him personally and relationally. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. In a moment of prayer, if you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, we want to give you the opportunity to do that before you leave. You don't have to take a test. You just have to recognize the spiritual battle that is a part of every life. And decide if you're going to trust Jesus more than you trust yourself to win that war. If you want to place your trust in him, take that step of faith. And we invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment. Just in your own words, something like this, just say, silently talk to him and just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin. I give you my life. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I have. I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. Nobody's stirring or moving for any reason, but just, if that was your prayer, it's important that you understand it's too important. It's too significant eternally to let this moment pass alone. 
that part of what God does is he adopts us into the family of faith. And so as a church, we want to help in any way that we can as that family. I mean, we want to learn from you at some point. So if you would, before you go, just fill out that connect card that's in your program. Just fill it out. You'll notice about halfway down or so, there's a a place to indicate there, I committed my life to Christ today. Tear that off at the perforation, and before you leave, hand that to one of our ushers. Or under the blue awning out front. Just to let us know that God did that in your life, that you responded, that you're part of the family of faith now, that you're not alone. You're not the only one fighting that battle. But also, as our heads are bowed, if if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just lift your hand up high over your head for a moment and hold it there so that you know this is real, that God did this, and it's forever. You never have to take that step again. Now you get to just begin growing in that relationship. But also, by raising your hand, you stamp this moment into the life of this church. There's nothing more important to us than that. And so as a family, we celebrate that with you. We honor that with you. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.